When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Mocheza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Kevin Passmore. He's a professor of history at Cardiff University, and he's here to, uh, with us to talk about a very, very timely topic, uh, fascism. You wrote a book in 2014 called Fascism, a very short introduction published by Cambridge University Press. But the topic has never been more important. So, uh, Kevin, thank you very much for accepting this invitation to talk with us on New Books Network. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, before starting to talk about the book, could you please briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your field of expertise and, more importantly, why you decided to write a book about uh, a, short introduction about a short introduction of fascism? Well, I, I began my academic career by writing a history of the right and the extreme right in the... Uh, in the city of, of Lyon in uh, France. And in that, I became interested in the question of fascism because there is a, there is a big debate in fascism in, uh, in France, which persists even now, actually, and still sometimes makes the newspapers about whether or not there was significant fascist movement in France. Now, it revolves around the question of definition, which we will come on to in a moment, and the very possibility of can we have a definition. I have also long been interested in the que- in questions of historical and method and of method in the social science, and the question actually of what a, what a concept is and what a concept can do. So I became interested in the idea of fascism and whether it's possible even to have a definition, a once-for-all definition, which will decide the question that many people, questions that people want to ask and uh, often turn to academics to, to resolve. And, and that's one of the questions I want to ask. I know that it's very problematic, but, um, uh, but I really like to know why it's problematic to come up with a definition. It's a term that everybody uses. Uh, people call their enemies fascists. Um, but but why is that? Why is it difficult to come up with a, let's say, a framework or a definition of what fascism is? Well, fascism is no different to any other political concept. And what I would argue is that we need to treat it like other political concepts. When we use the term socialism or liberalism or uh, conservatism, we know that those terms can have very different meanings. So when we talk about it, we're always having the back of minds, well, what do you mean by conservatism? We also know that if we write the history, say, of 
any well of any political party, we're always thinking about how have its evolved, how have its ideas evolved, how have they changed through often very long periods, what conflicts have been in the party. We now, for example, have a have a have a combat for the soul of the of the Republican Party. Now, each side in that debate, uh, every each side there claims that they represent the true essence of the Republican Party. Now, as a historian, our job is not to uh, say who's right, who represents the true uh, <laughs> excuse me the true meaning of uh, the true meaning of the Republican Party and. Who's the real Republican? We have to explain why that, why the party has, uh, why the party's changed. Why have there been these conflicts? Why? I mean, the Republican Party is a very good example because, for example, its electoral geography has radically changed through history. Now its bastions are in the south, which were once democratic bastions. Actually, so we need to treat fascism in the same way. We need to use the term, but we need to think about what did people mean by fascism when they were when they were using the expression. Why did they conflict over what the fascist party was? Because a fascist party, like any part, any party, is diverse. People have fundamentally different uh, views. People will use the term. Sometimes they will refuse it. Uh, often the conflicts within Italian fascism, even if we if we confine our attention simply to Italian fascism, they became questions of life or death. History, uh, Mussolini uh, imprisoned people who were founding members of fascism on the grounds that they were not true fascists. So we need to treat fascism as something which diverse and changing new meanings and we need to understand how and why it changes and with what with what uh, with what consequences rather than try and step in and say who were the true fascists the other reason why i think fascism is particularly problematic is because fascism is a term which for various reasons which we can all work out ourselves, has become a term of abuse for everyone. Nobody wants to be a fascist. And so consequently, as a politician, it's always tempting to accuse your enemies of fascism. So we'll find that the far right includes, uh, accuses the far left of fascism and the far left accuses the right of fascism. Each of them can quite easily select elements of what fascism might have been at some particular time to apparently make a case. But that's not what historians are trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to understand what and why and how things change. So we need to set aside this kind of political use, which is really based on an impossible something impossible, which is to come up with a once and for all definition. But of course, there's a great political interest in trying to label your enemies as fascist and uh, trying to define fascism in such a way that you can label your your enemies as fascist, whilst, of course, defining fascism in such a way that you're not one. Uh, and I really like the way you look at this issue uh, as a historian. And uh, I myself 
had this illusion that fascism was something that started in the 20th century only uh, before reading your book, of course. But then again, uh, reading your book uh, completely changed my a lot of conceptions that I misconceptions, let's say, that I had about fascism. But we'll talk about some of those things. Uh, in your book, you talk about a Marxist and also a Weberian approach to, to, to defining maybe uh, fascism. How, how are these two tackle this question? Well, well, the, 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 the Marxist approach, the Marxist approach is is kind of easier to guess, and that uh, Marxists believe that fascism is an outgrowth of uh, of capitalism in crisis periods. Where Marxist, particularly, the Marxist definition of fascism has actually changed historically. In the nineteen twenties, they the the, the 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 communist movement went through an ultra ultra revolutionary period and they basically believed that anybody who wasn't on the side of the communists was a fascist now as a result they said that even the socialists were fascists and they called them social fascists now this is what i mean by definition because that had real consequences because in germany as nazism rose there was no possibility of an alliance of an anti-fascist alliance between communists and fascists to fight the Nazis. Sorry, an alliance between the communists and the socialists to fight the Nazis because the communists thought that the socialists were fascists. So that definition had real consequences. Um, it meant that the communists and the socialists could never join together to fight Nazism. Of course, when Hitler came to power, uh, his first but not only victims were was the Communist Party, the German Communist Party was destroyed. And so the Communist International, the International Association of Communist Movements, basically introduced a new policy, which was to defend democracies against fascism. It's so thought, well, you know, if actually, maybe after all, democracy is rather better than fascism as it defined it. So, um, it changed its argument, its definition of fascism, and it said that fascism, that fascism is monopoly capitalism. It's an outgrowth of monopoly capitalism in now uh, the most reactionary elements of monopoly capitalism. Now, that's a new definition. Instead of everybody who wasn't a communist being a fascist, now, um, now fascists were just these kind of reactionary elements of monopoly capitalism, i.e. almost nobody. But that meant that the Communist parties could ally in an anti-fascist alliance with virtually anyone who was willing to ally with them. Because now, from everybody being a fascist, virtually nobody was a fascist except this except this kind of semi-mythical um, outgrowth of monopoly capitalism. Communists of Marxists have developed more sophisticated views of uh, views in the in 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 that excuse me in the present, but that will do for now. Um, but always, in some way or other, it has something to do with capitalism and with class power, and we see that now. Um, Insofar as Marxist definitions remain important, the Weberian definition is rather different in that it argues that basically fascism is a movement of anti-modern 
elements in society. They argue that certain people, through the developments of modern society, the market of democracy, of uh, liberty, um, uh, economic progress, the development of uh, capitalism, that certain people are losers. Um, and they would point, for example, to the old aristocracy, um, to small artisans, traditional uh, traditional uh, producers, the peasantry, and they would argue that these groups, resisting modernity, uh, turn to uh, turn to fascism. They would also see that in the churches, they would see modern society as eroding the position of the churches, and so they would say there is a kind of search for an alternative, or at least a society which restores the role of religion, perhaps. But there's also here, um, they see modern society as as too individualist. So it's an intellectual combat against modernity as, as well. Um, but um, what they would see in fascism is a kind of collective thing which gives people something to fasten on to beyond just the individual. It would include family, region, nation, race perhaps. So that's how Vibirians would see it. So for Marxists to sum up, fascism is a kind of last-ditch sound of capitalism, perhaps. For Vaburians, it's a reaction against modern society in its material and intellectual forms. Uh, so, so I'm guessing that's why, from a Weberian perspective, it's some elements of fascism are maybe conservative, as you mentioned, the, the idea of clinging to race or religion. Yeah, um, it can we're talking about from their perspective they would see they said it would be compatible with the Weberian idea is that fascism is a kind of alternative religion and there is a theory which has a lot uh, which kind of is quite closely related to the Weberian approach which sees fascism actually as a political religion um providing the kind of unifying principle that uh, supposedly disappears in individualist modern society. And uh, how, how can we trace the origin of fascism to the Enlightenment or even anti-Enlightenment philosophy? Well, some people have argued that. There are particularly versions that rely on, on, um, rely on Weberian approaches that um, this that fascism really first originated in a reaction against enlightenment values such as individualism and reason. Um, I personally wouldn't say you can see the origins of fascism there, um, but I'll come back to that in a moment. But there are other people, and this is what makes it complex, is... Um, some people would argue that uh, fascism actually came from the Enlightenment. They argue exactly the opposite, that the kind of... Again, I'm talking from other people's perspectives here. I'm not necessarily putting my own point of view, and this is really where we get the difficulties of definition, because you can... One of the problem is problems with 
connections between ideologies. Just you can find connections between any two ideologies, basically. And some people would say that fascism is even the kind of an outgrowth of the Enlightenment because of its belief in total control. Um, for example, some people who see the Holocaust as an outgrowth of uh, outgrowth of the Enlightenment see the bureaucratic nature of the Holocaust, the bureaucratic industrial nature of the Holocaust as an outgrowth of modern society, which originated in the Enlightenment. Mm. I mean, you to make a case, the problem is you could make it on that kind of super level, superficial level, both are plausible, but I think it doesn't get us very far either way, actually. Mm. My point would be that fascism takes that when fascism emerged and started to use the name, when fascism used the name in Italy in after nineteen eighteen, that it took ideas from all over the place, and it took contradictory ideas, and all sorts of people took different ideas. All that really united fascists was that they joined the same party. Just like any other party. So there you go. And and in your book you talk about a very interesting character, Gustave Lubon, who wrote a seminal yeah. work, The Crowd, a study of popular mind. How's he and his work related to fascism? Well, Mussolini quoted Le Bon. So did Adolf Hitler. Um Le Bon had an enormous influence, however, across the political spectrum. Now, what Le Bon believed was that there was society was divided between the elite and the mass. The elite was a group of people who were rational, intelligent, but also possessed a kind of charismatic. Uh, quality, a spiritual quality as well. So they combine the two. They were therefore a kind of species, superior beings, if you like. They could, but he would call them an elite in the language of the time. Now, the elite contrasted with the so-called mass. Now, this was ordinary people. Um, this was who were viewed, it has to be said in very negative terms, as people who were not rational, but ir irrational, and they were motivated not by reason. They didn't have charismatic authority or spiritual qualities. They were simply materialists. They cared about what they ate and how much they earned. And they were also irrational. And so Le Bon thought that they were motivated by irrational ideas. Um, and they could. he also thought that they could be easily manipulated. Now then what he said was that the question of history is who controls the mass? Was it the true elite or was it what he called the agitators or the demagogues? So almost every party took up, but almost everybody in this period believed Le Bon's distinction between the, the rational elite and the irrational mass. Even Lenin and the communists believed it. Freud believed it. Much of modern uh, social science at one time was based on this distinction. But this is how fascists came to use it. What they said is, we are the elite. We understand we've got, we're motivated by national feeling. We understand that 
we are, we are motivated by the higher ideal of service to the nation, but we're also rational and intelligent. And what we do is we promote a certain set of national ideas and we connect with the innate good sense of the mass. But to do that, you have to eliminate the false elites. Now, for the fascists in Italy, the false elites were basically the socialists and the communists and Freemasons. So that was how they used Le Bon. The question of history is who guides the mass? The true elite, which is always, of course, us. Or is it the false elite, whoever your enemy happens to be? And so you may have to eliminate the false enemy. You have to promote better ideas, but you may have to eliminate them through repression. But I would stress that Le Bon's ideas were shared um, right across the political spectrum. They were hardly contested by anyone. Really, what you have to look at is the particular way that fascists use them. Hitler, leaving aside for now whether Hitler was a fascist, um, used it in a different way. He said, we, are the, we represent the true German elite. The false elite that we have to fight for the allegiance of the mass is the Judeo-Bolshevik uh, conspiracy. Uh, and uh, what about the growth of or creation of, let's say, nation states and the growing nationalism? Was it in any way, in the 18th century, was it in any way related to uh, fascism or growth of fascism? Well, fascism certainly looked to national, to national, um, to the development of nations and fascists did claim those who used that I mean here we're having to say people who called themselves fascists are leaving aside the question of who um, who might have been a fascist without using the word to later because that as I said right at the beginning is a really difficult question um, but yes fascists the fascists in Italy did of course see themselves as nations now one of this is where Mussolini is an interesting character because Mussolini started out as a socialist so he started out saying, you know, my, I believe, you know, in the victory of the proletariat, perhaps the victory of the international proletariat. At the time, you know, he represented a party that was uh, part of the social, second socialist international. So, but during the First World War, he moved over into the idea of intervention into the uh, First World War. He wanted to Italy to intervene on the side of the Allies. And... At this point, he starts to revise his, his ideas, and he said that, well, the, 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 uh, our refer his reference points, point started to be the nation rather than class. He said the nation is the key driving force in history. And what I now, effectively, he now started to argue for the uh, supremacy of nation over class. Now, in the Italian case, he... Uh, drew on an idea that had wider currency amongst Italian nationalists, actually, which is that the unification of Italy, Italy had been unified in the 1860s, was incomplete because it was simply an elite phenomenon at that time that only the Italian elites really identified with the nation that the mass of the population still really only cared about region they spoke dialects. 
sort. And so what Mussolini said was that fascism will complete the work of Italian, of Italian unity. So yes, fascism did. Whether fascism, whether nationalism necessarily led to fascism is a question that can that can't be answered because there were many different forms of nationalism. Um, many socialist parties also stressed were also nationalist in some way or other at the same time. For example, the the German SPD, the German Social Democrats, um, some of them, the more reformist wings, said that the task of the socialists is to complete the work of German unity and integrate the working classes into the nation. And so nationalism itself is not intrinsically going to lead to fascism because just like any other political ideology, nationalism is uh, nationalism is is a diverse. So in the nineteenth century, preceding fascism was a diverse theology, and could lead in many directions. Um, how about what about the not not the following the ideology of today's modern extreme right in the United States or even in parts of Europe? How do you see similarities or differences between their ideology or elements of fascism in their their ideology and the one that we witnessed uh, between the First and the Second World War? It's a broad well, question. I know it could be difficult. It is a very question, and you know, I'm not an expert in everything. <laughs> um, so, what I would say. What I would say about the fascist nationalism, I'm thinking particularly about Italy. And if we do think about, I'll use the term extreme right in the interwar Europe period, because it's easier to use that term because we know that the extreme right comes in diverse forms. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. Um, and we don't have to get into it was fascism, who wasn't. But extreme right movements in Europe Many of them were, well, they were interested in that. Really is a that really is a hard question. Yeah. Just, so maybe, maybe I should rephrase because I know I it's a it covers a large topic, and I tried to condense maybe a century of history into a simple question. <laughs> so maybe I should rephrase. But I needed to think. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want it to be reductive as uh, it could be misleading because it's a difficult concept to define even to spot elements. That, yeah. So maybe I should rephrase my question. Let's say, what are some prominent maybe elements or features of extreme right? Like we talk about nationalism, but are, are there's a populism, anti-elitism or victimization yeah. of minorities? Yeah, Um well, if we take, if we, we, it needs to be taken. Um, generalization is is very very difficult. But if we're um, if we're thinking about, say, Italy, um, one of the one of the key differences between interwar Europe and uh, the modern far right is that in interwar Europe, immigration was mostly not an issue in particularly for the far right uh germany and italy 
again, they think it's like a question of whether Germany is fashion, but insofar as the NASA has said, we, we can refer to this a far right movement. Uh, Germany and Italy were not great countries of immigration. Only really in interwar Europe, only France was the country of immigration. Uh, so immigration was not an issue. So comparing, we can certainly say, if we took the question of racism, we can, if we, to say that, say, Trumpism or the, uh, or the, or the, uh, Rassemblement National in France, they, uh, uh, Nazism, Italian fascism, at a very general level, we can say that they all share racism and the idea of some kind of idea of racial superiority, sort of, but even that's quite difficult. But on another level, there's a very great difference between Italian, the Italian, in, in the case of Italy, Italy's racism mainly focused on imperialism. Italian fascism was directed toward, was it was partly inspired by the fact that Italy did not have an empire, uh, the equal of British and the French empires. And it goes back to, um, it goes back to the 19th century and it hadn't just been fascists who said that, but um, liberals, conservatives, nationalists, all sorts of people had said it. Fascists made it a priority and eventually, of course, invaded Ethiopia and they carried out a vicious racial war. And of course, it was based on the, oh, it was based on an idea of white supremacy. Uh, the situation for Germany was rather different, although Germany has a has a, a history of colonialism. Hitler was not didn't want particularly to get German colonies back, so it's a very different kind of racism. There were other elements of Nazism that did. Uh, Goering, for example, was sometimes said to keep tradition periodism, uh, but Hitler didn't. His target was actually. Not immigrants, because well, there were some immigrants in Germany, but it was part of it was not in for immigrants, but Germans, Germans who happened to be Jewish. Mm. But that was his target, and he saw that as a world conspiracy. So that again is quite different to um, say the, the modern populist far right, which is often directed against immigration and people of recent uh, immigration. The best parallels um, are really actually between the modern far right and uh, I'm, the, between, the, between the modern far right and uh, the interwar period is probably actually with France, actually, where particularly in terms of racism, it's that I would say is a better both. So I'm just giving that as an example of one aspect of the question you ask. And mm. of whilst on one level we can say, well, they're all racists, um, it doesn't tell us very much on its own. Mm. Mm. Uh, and what about fascism and the role of gender or the role of women? How do fascists in general, or how did they view the, the role of women in politics or in society? Well, again, it um, in fascism in if we take start with fascism 
in Italy. Uh, if we start with fascism in Italy, it started off with an, with, as an ultra-masculinist masculinist movement rooted in veteran violence. It was a very violent movement. Mm. Uh, and there was no place, really, for women in it, theoretically. Um, with time, fascism became less masculinist in that the ideal became less the kind of fascist fighter. And it, as it became an established regime, the ideal of the fascist man became that became somebody who went to work each day and worked for the glory of uh, fascism and in Italy, perhaps an office job or some kind of other organisation each day. So that kind of element changed. Nevertheless, women did join the fascist movement in Italy. And part of the reason for that is that with time, um, in order to uh, broaden his movement, Mussolini made a kind of, he reached out to Catholics, basically. And that meant reaching out to women because female can, female religious practice much higher than male in, uh, in Catholic areas of uh, Europe. And that left to note, and there had been a long tradition of women being involved in church organisations, and much of that was kind of transferred over. There were other routes of women did not have the vote, of course, and so women had been used to operating outside the system, outside the parliamentary system. They were excluded from conventional political parties. And so despite the masculinist side of fascism, women often got involved. And so the uh, Fasci Feminali, the women's organisation of the fascist organisation, became quite big. And, uh, and coexisted often rather uneasily with the male with the male elements um so that's that's what happened in italy now that was that is also true of some of the far right movements and very different types actually across europe at the time um across catholic europe far right movements whether or whatever their degree of resemblance with Italian fascism often did have quite strong female memberships because it represented often the only way that women could be involved in the public sphere. Whilst um, at the same time, at least nominally, uh, claiming to not break with conventional ideas of female role, which of course to have babies in the family. So in fascist movements, uh, the role of women was often to engage in social work. So they would, um, they would uh, reach out to working class people and try and promote fascism through welfare to families and that kind of thing, through leisure activities and that kind of thing. <laughs> That's I kind of hope that answers the question. But it does. Yeah, the situation in Germany was 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 rather different. Yeah, I guess uh, you're quite right that even different elements could differ depending where where this 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 kind of ideology takes off. Um, I'm I'm also curious to know, and I could be wrong. It, it's just my assumption that 
people that are attracted to this ideology or become followers of this ideology sometimes might come from more economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, in Italy, mm -hmm. if Italy, what happens in Italy is it started out as, as a pretty diverse movement, actually. Um, both veterans, some working class people, ex-socialists, uh, and so on. Um, but soon after, soon after the fascist party was formed in Italy, it did very badly in the first elections, but there was a huge wave of strikes. Now, what happened at that point was that fascism became an anti-union movement, a union-busting movement. And it, and it, um, it developed initially, actually, in the countryside, because there was a huge wave of strikes by agricultural labourers. And it particularly, actually, uh, appealed then to the sons of quite wealthy farmers and wealthier far wealthier peasants and those kinds of people. So it became a more bourgeois, anti-working class movement. Um, same is true in Germany. It, Again, leaving aside the question, but the far right in Germany, it was overrepresented actually more in the middle class. And it was the it was the it was the right in Germany, the nationalist right and the and the liberal conservative right, which lost voters to fascism, and they had largely ceased to exist. The centre disappeared and turned largely to the Nazis. The socialists lost some votes, but the communists went from strength to strength. And they really were the by far the most working class party. So at that time, I mean, fascism in Italy and Germany, as it developed and as it came to power, did a great, did it develop a much wider did develop a much wider appeal. Now we have to remember also that uh, the left have never had a monopoly on the uh, on the working class vote in Germany or Italy or anywhere else, and. Sometimes the working class people who voted for fascism or for Nazism were um, working class voters of the right with a tradition of right wing voting. Um, if you're asking about the modern far right, the situation is, uh, is different. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the case I know best, because it was the first mass organization of the far right, far right is in France and there actually it started out as a as a as a middle class a middle class reaction against the election of France's socialist government in 1981 it has become a more eclectic movement it has votes it has the, the what it is now the rassemblement national which uh, replaced the Front national has votes in smaller rural communities amongst uh, lower middle class voters that you might call working class or lower middle class uh, nurses, people who live in commuter towns without facilities, um, certainly not areas of immigrant presence. But it's also got quite a strong vote in the industrialised areas, such as Eastern France, uh, the Moselle, for example, uh, where it, where the working class is now divided, 
uh, between socialists and uh, the far right. Those are areas actually of actually where there has been a strong tradition of right wing working class voting anyway, and a strong tradition actually of uh, of. Uh, racism, actually, and those were areas of immigration. Interestingly, the far right is, uh, is very weak in Paris, which is uh, the most um, multicultural uh, part of France and uh, the area where uh, the, where most immigrants are, or people of immigrant descent are, uh, are concentrated. So the situation varies greatly, actually. Historically, I mean, here I'm talking very broad. Perhaps we'll come on to the fascism nuts of the relationship later. <laughs> and, and I understand that uh, you mentioned to me earlier that uh, that your uh, the, the book is good. this is the second edition of the book. There's a new edition coming out in 2024. Am I right? Yeah, well, I think it's due to published in 25, I think. It's, it's partly to incorporate some newer research on the way that the ideas, on the way that, the other, on the way really that fascism, of all the different words that the far right explain, used to explain stuff, there were all sorts of movements that were roughly similar. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, reading the new version once it's uh, it's out. Uh, Professor Kevin Haswell, thank you very, very much for your time on your book, Sent for Again, sharing your thoughts with us. Okay, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to, pleasure to speak to you.